We can watch it again. Well, good morning, church. It's a joy to be with you today. I'm glad to be here. Uh, some of you requested snow, and I want you out. <laughs> please, please. If you're joining us online, uh, it's a joy to have you with us as well. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we are one week from Easter Sunday. This is whole... Preteens, get out of here. That's good. Michelle Jackson is up here. You don't have to get out of here, but you can join Michelle, and you'll have a lot of fun with her. Thanks for the reminder. Anytime. Anytime. Uh, we are, like I was saying, we are one week from Easter Sunday, the high holy day of the church year. This is the most important day um, in our celebration because we remember what Christ did, that he died and came back to life. And so we commemorate that in a couple of ways. Obviously, we'll have our Easter Sunday services. And this Friday, we do have a Good Friday service. Um, we'll talk about this at the end. But 10 a.m. on Friday morning, one service. Uh, child nursery care is provided, but um, we'll have a family time together. So come and join us this Friday for a commemoration of Christ's crucifixion. But today, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, is Palm Sunday. And the text that we look at today is the text about Jesus entering Jerusalem on the week before his crucifixion. And what's amazing is that this text overlaps with our series in Jeremiah, so that we get to talk about Jeremiah and Jesus at the same time. And in a moment, what I want to begin with is reading our scripture, which is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. Uh, Liesl read part of this earlier, but I'll read the rest of it now. Um, at the end of reading the scripture, I will say the words, the word of the Lord. And if, for some of you uh, who come from uh, more liturgical traditions, there will be an urge and instinct into you to say, thanks be to God. And some of you won't feel that urge, and that's okay, but I want to give you permission to say it. I'll say it today, uh, but you don't, uh, don't, there's no obligation. We're not keeping attendance. We're not watching who says it and who doesn't say it to see who gets to come back next week. So let's read uh, this scripture together. Now I'll read it for you. This is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25, the story of the triumphal entry. As they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had Beth Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, 
And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out to the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. Jesus answered, saying to him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Palm Sunday. What is it? Uh, To many of you, this story will be familiar. To some of you, it's new. So let me recap some of the details for you. Jesus has been an itinerant preacher. He just wanders around with a preaching ministry. He doesn't really have a home. Uh, He's kind of a homeless preaching vagabond in some ways, okay? And he's gathered in this process um, a a significant group of disciples. Uh, We read in Acts chapter 1 that there's 120 people following Jesus around. And most of the time, he's been up north in an area called Galilee. Now, from the 120 up north, he's handpicked 12 to be his special representatives, 12 disciples to be his special representatives. And more than this, he sent out groups of disciples in pairs of two on their own preaching ministries. So it's not just Jesus. There's actually like 72 others in addition to the disciples who are going around in groups of two preaching all over the area. And their message appears to be all the same. Each one preaches what the New Testament calls the gospel. And the gospel is this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn your life around because God's kingdom is coming. Now, this is a time in Israel's national history where they're under Roman rule. They don't have sovereignty. There's a Roman governor and Roman soldiers, and the Romans are the ones who hold the power, and they can do what they want. And so there's hunger in the local Israelites to be independent once again. They want to be their own nation and their own people. And so the language of the kingdom of God is probably a little easy to misunderstand. The kingdom of God is at hand sounds like we're going to have our own sovereignty again. And I think people misunderstand Jesus. So Jesus, who's made a name for himself as a sign prophet, performing signs and wonders and preaching and taking down the authorities, he performs miracles, he begins to work his way down towards Jerusalem. All eyes are on him. Jerusalem, city of David, the king. Jerusalem, city of the temple, spiritual home of national Israel. Jerusalem, spiritual and political capital of Israel. People are watching closely. And in preparation, Jesus and his disciples uh, sends them forward to find a donkey for him to ride on. If I were going to show up as a king somewhere, I wouldn't choose a donkey, right? Wouldn't you choose something a little more elegant, like a war horse or a, I don't know, like a big bicycle or a motorcycle to show up to show you're the king? How do you flex your masculinity? I don't know, okay? So why a donkey? 
a couple reasons. I don't have the verse on the screen, but 1 Kings 1.38 says this, is that Solomon rides on a donkey while he is declared king of Israel. Solomon is, and so there's in the national memory is that when David dies and Solomon succeeds him, that he rides the donkey to show that he's the coming king. And so there's donkeys in the air, that's right. And then Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah the prophet promises that with the coming kingdom, the king would ride on a donkey. This verse is on your screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the donkey points to the fact in the Old Testament narrative that Jesus is a king. The donkey identifies him as a king, and this is quite clearly a staged event. Jesus is doing something that kings do to declare their kingship. He's showing it. And the people in the crowds recognize the staged event, and so they gather, and they get branches of palms, and they wave them at Jesus, and they sing the psalms at him. Both these verses come from the psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're expecting a king. So the crowds who welcome Jesus on Palm Sunday are looking for a king, someone who will beat back the Romans and reestablish national Israel. That's probably the hope that's working in them. But Jesus doesn't play according to their expectations. In fact, he rarely plays according to our expectations. That's why he's the king and we're not. Okay. So this brings us to the next thing. Why does he drive out these money changers? Because the very next thing he does is he goes into the temple and he begins kicking them out. In fact, in John's gospel, he makes a whip and starts whipping people to get them out of this thing. And he's flipping tables. It's remarkable. Let me read this verse for you again. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 18 to draw our attention to it. They, the disciples, came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who were selling doves, doves are nice, why do you have to kick out the doves? And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple, and he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching." This is a very different Jesus to the, maybe the gentle Jesus, meek and mild that some of you have in your imaginations, the kindly, nice Jesus who never offends anyone and never does anything wrong. This is a very different kind of Jesus. This is a little different from Ricky Bobby's baby Jesus. He prefers to the stern Jesus. Sometimes we like a Jesus of our choosing, right? This is not the Jesus of our choosing. It's difficult to imagine Jesus very gently flipping tables. Nightly, nicely turning over, or driving people out with a kind of usherly shoe. Go on, go on, get out now, right? He's, he's agitated. This is not the actions of someone who's at ease. He's, he's making a ruckus. He's causing an uproar. He's drawing attention to himself, and I think that's the point. He gets all attention on him, and then he says this bit about the house of prayer for all nations when he has everybody's attention on him. And when the religious leaders hear it, they want to kill him. They recognize it's something serious. So why does he drive out the money changers and flip the tables of the dove sellers? I've heard a lot of explanations in my life. I've heard a lot of explanations. And I'll go through some of these. Some of of the people use this passage to condemn 
uh, consumerism in the church. Maybe you've heard this. Um, when I was young, my, my parents had divorced and we had to change churches. And so we ended up at a church called Willow Creek Community Church. It was one of the first mega churches. There were close to 20,000 people there every weekend. Four services, 5,000 people each service. They had a campus. The place was massive. They had parking attendants and basketball courts. And they had a massive food court where you and your friends could go and purchase victuals to enjoy with people after the service. And there were moments sitting in those things where I thought to myself, if Jesus came in here and saw all this commerce in the church, would he flip the tables again, right? Is that what this is about? And I've heard that interpretation, and myself included this. And some people believe the church is no place for buying and selling. This is the house of God, people. Money's dirty, okay? It's a kind of background logic. Now, I've also heard people link this, and this is very uncharitable. I've heard people link a passage like this to the Jewish, quote-unquote, love for money. And there's some anti-Semitism that comes up here, right? Look, the Jews loved money, and they brought money love into the temple. Look at Judas. He loved money, and he betrayed Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. Jews, Jews betray Jesus for money, and this is the reason why you can go forth and do all sorts of things. I've heard that as well, Okay. I think that's not right. But neither of these explanations take stock of the Old Testament. And any time you're a little confused about what's going on in the New Testament, guess what? The answer is probably there in the first two-thirds of your Bible. So let's look at a couple of reasons right now. Because the Old Testament gives us two really good reasons why there might be money changers in the temple vicinity. So reason number one for money changers in the temple, Deuteronomy commands it. Ready? The book of Deuteronomy commands that there should be some kind of money changers. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 20 through, 22 through 27, and I've highlighted the key verses. Uh, Moses writes, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of your field every year. You shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that may, you may learn to fear the Lord your God Always. I'll pause. A tithe is you take a portion of your offering and you offer it to God. And it's funny because the tithe here means you're supposed to take a portion of your offering and eat it at a party. You're supposed to celebrate and celebrate with other people. 24. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money. And bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. So your tithes should support the priestly class because they have no, um, they have no financial land and backing behind them. All right. Most Israelites have to travel in order to get to Jerusalem. They've got to travel some distance. And festivals, if you're going for a festival, <clears throat> there's got to be food and an offering. It's difficult to travel with your livestock and all these things. And so God makes provision for you to sell the livestock for money, take the money with you, and then exchange it for goods at the capital. Money changers are providing a service prescribed by the book of Deuteronomy. It's a valuable service. So exchanging money isn't the problem. That's not the problem here. Jesus isn't condemning, in this passage, he's not condemning consumerism, although I think we'd all agree consumerism is bad, right? 
to be defined by your consumption is bad and to make the church a place of, of branding and consumption is bad, but that's not what this passage is about. Reason number two for money changers in the temple. Ready? Reason number two is the second commandment. The second commandment. Uh, I know all of you have memorized the second commandment, uh, but I'll read it for you anyway. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, where God says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Why does this commandment matter here? Why is the second commandment? Because Roman coins were stamped with the image of Caesar. We've got a picture of a Roman coin in the next image, I think. Go ahead, Don, to the next for me. Ah, there's an image of Caesar Augustus on this Roman coin. Caesar Augustus claimed to be a god. An image of a god on your Roman money means that you're walking into the temple with an idol. You're violating the second commandment. And so having a money changer meant you could offload your pagan, idolatrous, sinful money and get legitimate, unimaged shekels to spend at these places. And so Jewish thinking Roman currency had to be exchanged. And so the money changers are once again providing a valuable and important service in this place. Now, these are two very good reasons for money changers to be in the temple vicinity. People travel to Jerusalem, and they're following the commands of Deuteronomy, and people have to engage with Roman idols. They can't, they can't get away from it, and they want to follow the commandments at Sinai. So, money changers aren't bad people, but Jesus still flips tables. Why? And the answer is because of where they're doing it. It's where they're doing it that's the problem. You see, the temple in Jerusalem was divided into a variety of areas. Uh, if any of you have been to Jerusalem, you'll know there's an image here we'll go to next. Um, if you've been to Jerusalem, you'll see that it looks today like, go ahead, Don, to the next image for me. It looks like this. You've seen perhaps the Dome of the Rock, which is a mosque uh, built upon the site of the Jewish temple in this space. And, so, and we have no idea actually what the Hebrew temple looked like. We just have some ideas and some we can estimate from some biblical things. And people have recreated this. So the next image is going to be this kind of artist's recreation of what the temple looks like. Go ahead to the next. All right. <clears throat> and so what you have, I'll point to the screen. What you have is at the very middle, you've got the Holy of Holies. That's the Sanctum Sanctorum. This is the place where only the high priest goes once a year because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, and that's where they bring the, the holy sacrifice of all. There's an inner court where certain Jews are allowed to go at certain times, and this whole wide outer court, there's the outer wall outside, this whole outer court is called the Court of the Gentiles. It's a place where anybody who wanted to come and worship and engage with God was free to come into that space. Anybody was allowed in that space. Only certain Jews in the central area, only the high priest in the Holy of Holies, but there's a place where anybody can come. And it's this court, most likely, where the money changers have set up their shop. And now this begins to make sense with the words of Mark eleven seventeen, where Jesus quotes these two Old Testament scriptures together. Mark eleven seventeen says this, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Two Old Testament quotes in this verse. The first part of the verse is a quote from the book of Isaiah. 
The second part is a quote from the book of Jeremiah, and we need to look for a moment at both passages to make sense of what Jesus is doing on, why he gets so stinking angry at this moment. First, let's look at Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 7. Here's what Isaiah says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, I have no fruitfulness. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths and chooses what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Now, we've talked about this before, but God has always had the whole world in his, in his sights. He wasn't just looking at the Jews, at Abraham and Abraham's children and David. He looked at them because through them he wanted to reach the world. He wanted everyone. And so the house of prayer is the house of prayer for all nations. Remember Genesis 12, 1 and 2, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed is the promise. And so this temple space, especially this court of the Gentiles, is the designated place for the nations to encounter God. That's the place set aside for this. But here it is in the Gospels being used for the fulfillment of the law. So Israel is doing the right thing, but in the wrong place and at the wrong time. It's the right thing, but in the wrong place. This is a complex sentence, but I think you can follow along. Instead of following the law to glorify God before the nations, Israel had placed the law between God and the nations. Do you see the difference? You follow the law in order to fulfill the commandment of God and glorify God before the nations, to draw the nations to God. But instead, you've placed the law as a buffer between the nations and God. Now, instead of being mission, it becomes something that makes you, I don't know, God's special snowflake. Right? You get to feel precious and protected, and I'm so much better than everyone else. It's a good thing none of us ever think this about our faith. We take our sense of Christian identity and rules and regulations and we use it as a way to weaponize and say, well, we're better than those pagans outside. Sometimes I think we do that and we're in danger of the same sin as Israel. And Paul has some words about that in the book of Romans about how some people are going to get cut off. That's the Isaiah passage. And the second passage that Jesus quotes is this business of a robber's den which actually comes from our study of Jeremiah. This time, chapter 7, a passage we looked at together a few weeks ago. And I'm going to read it for you again. This is Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, 
If you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We're delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, in the context of Jeremiah, we've shown how his condemnation of Israel's injustice and idolatry and neglect of the law, combined with trust in the temple itself as a place that would save them, uh, is what's going on. And I remind you that in the context of Jeremiah, he has the nations in mind as well. Isaiah's about the nations, but Jeremiah's also got the nations in mind. Very briefly, is Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, that you should return to me, and if you put away your detested things from my presence, and you will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, key verse, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. Your repentance brings the nations. So what do Jesus and Jeremiah mean by this accusation of a den of robbers? What does he mean by this? I think there's actually three things. And I've picked three words to share with you, and I'm going to be honest, I don't like these three words. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to edit them as I go here. So number one is the word place. I think he's speaking about the temple itself. And he's saying that you, like a den of robbers, are like squatters in a house you don't own. You're people who are making a muck of it and have no right to be here. You ever hear those horror stories about people who go on holiday for a few weeks and they come back and somebody else has taken up residence in their home and locked the door and they can't get in? And they're eating their food and using their toothbrushes and all sorts of horrible things or horrible things are happening. If, that's, if, the, if the use of your toothbrush is the worst thing that can happen to you, your life's okay. But um, there is the den of robbers means that you are defiling God's holy temple. If I were to rewrite this, I'd put the word defilement up here, probably. But all three letters begin with the letter P, because I'm a preacher, okay? <laughs> so number one is place. There's a defilement of this place. Second word is permission. Permission. I think in some ways the word den of robbers is a bit like a collective noun. You guys know collective nouns? Like a murder of crows or a congress of elephants? A den of robbers, right? You're all together in this. And being together, you're giving each other a kind of permission. If we're all together, it's going to be okay, isn't it? We all, we all do these things. And, you know, if you're going to be part of our club, you've got to go do this thing as well. We all steal. If, if everybody in a club steals and one guy holds out, he's not going to last long in the club, is he? A lot of pressure to join in. And so this den of robbers draws people, uh, gives them permission for their wickedness. And third word I choose is people. Place, permission, and people. And I think that Jesus is calling the Pharisees and religious leaders themselves robbers. You think you're in charge, but you're actually thieves and brigands and murderers. You are violating what God has done. Okay? Pick one. You could pick anyone you like. I think the Pharisees, I think if Jesus insults you, it's going to sting for a long time. <laughs> There's going to be layers that come through that. 
And I think the Pharisees heard any one of these things immediately and wanted to kill Jesus. So let me sum up this Palm Sunday business. Jesus enters the temple courts. He throws out the money changers, flips their tables. This draws attention to him. And then he loads his double-barreled shotgun with Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 and unloads both barrels on the Pharisees. And they get the message immediately. They know exactly what he means. And just with Jeremiah the prophet, nobody wants to hear what Jesus is saying. Nobody wants to hear it. And just like Jeremiah, they want to destroy him. So this brings me to something really interesting because uh, these past months we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah together. And until this series, I had never seen how many ways the lives of Jesus and Jeremiah overlap. It's remarkable to me to see these things. And I just want to highlight a couple of these things. Uh, the more I thought about them, the more I realized this overlap. Let me outline a few for you now. So, uh, we'll go through these briefly. Jeremiah is rejected in his hometown. The men of Anathoth turns against him. And what does Jesus say in Mark 6.4? A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Both rejected by their homes and by their families. Both men preach a message of renewal and return to the Lord. Jeremiah, on the basis of Josiah's revival, Jesus follows in the wake of John the Baptist's revival. They're following on a revival movement. They're riding the wake of what God's doing. It's fascinating to me that neither man writes anything for himself. Jeremiah doesn't write anything. He's got a scribe named Baruch who writes everything down. Jesus doesn't write any books. He's got four scribes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who write down his teachings, doesn't he? We get everything kind of secondhand. Both men anger the establishment so much that religious and civic officials decide to kill them. Jeremiah is thrown into a well. He's thrown in prison. He's ostracized, and there's plots to take his life. Pharisees gather to stone Jesus. His family tries to put him away because they think he's crazy. And, of course, hopefully we all know what happens on Friday of this week. They succeed. And of course, on top of these kind of broad narrative similarities, they overlap in the flavor of their prophetic messages. Both are completely sold out to, to the Lord. Completely sold out to the Lord, no matter what. Jesus sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Jeremiah hardens himself to preach the word of God, even though it hurts him. They're both concerned about the worship of God, about the treatment of the poor, about how we treat one another. I think what I want to see, I want you to see this morning, is that in some sense, by Jesus, uh, Jesus, by quoting Jeremiah at this moment, it's just two words. It's just two words, robber's den. But to me, it looks like he's actually taken up the entire weight of the book of Jeremiah and lobbed it at the temple establishment. And in the same way that they heard Jeremiah preach and rejected him, Jesus says, I'm just the same as Jeremiah, and you're just the same as Jeremiah's listeners. It's much heavier. Now, once again, this doesn't look very much like a king who's going to overthrow the Romans. So we have one more piece of the text to look at this morning, and that's this. What's going on with the fig tree? Okay. What does Jesus have against figs? Okay. So they're walking along. They see a fig tree. There's no fruit on the fig tree. Pretty common experience. Jesus is hungry. He doesn't find fruit, and he curses the tree. May no one ever eat from you again which should tell you that words may have more power than we think about sometimes. We should be careful about how we speak to one another. I mean, what did the tree do to Jesus? Did it catch him in a moment of frustration? 
Was he hangry? Is this why he flips tables later? Should Jesus have eaten a Snickers bar? Okay. Would that have changed the outcome here of things? After he's cleared the temple, the very next day, the curse has come true and the fig tree has died. One of the gospels say from the root up. It didn't like wither at the leaf. It, went, it died from, it's dead, dead, dead. As dead as it could possibly be. Now the answer to this is perhaps a little complex, but terribly important. Now Mark, author of this gospel, loves sandwich stories. He loves to put one thing in between two other things so he can kind of comment one upon the other. And so what we get here is a kind of fig tree sandwich. And so the bottom piece of bread is this business with the fig tree and being cursed. And then the meat of the sandwich is Jesus being in the temple. And then the top piece of the bread is the fig tree being destroyed. Okay? And you're supposed to read these two things together. And the story, the sandwich, the fig tree sandwich will make sense when you realize this. Jesus came to the temple looking for fruit. Jesus came to the temple looking for fruit. What was the fruit he was looking for? Well, Isaiah and Jeremiah give us the answer. Jesus was looking for the nations gathered in prayer. Where's the world who's supposed to be glorifying God in this space? He's looking for righteousness and justice, like Jeremiah says. He's looking for the people of God honoring their commitments. He's looking for people who love God, do justice, and love mercy. This is the fruit he's looking for. And now the story gets even more stark. Jesus comes to the fig tree. He looks for fruit. He doesn't find any. Jesus curses the fig tree because it doesn't have fruit. He comes to the temple looking for fruit, but he doesn't find any. Jesus curses the temple via Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. We get out to the fig tree. The fig tree's been withered from the root. And the pregnant but unspoken thing is, now what happens to the temple? If Jesus can curse the fig tree and it withers from the root up and Jesus just cursed the temple, what's going to happen? I'll tell you, it's going to be destroyed. And this is exactly what happens. In about 70 AD, when the Romans come in and they wipe it from the face of the earth. Now you get some idea of why they wanted to kill him. If you didn't have a clear idea already. What do we do with this? What do we do with a message like this? What do we do with the message of Palm Sunday? Well, I have news. For some, it's good, and for some, it's not good. Jesus is coming back. And he's told us when he's coming back that he will be looking for fruit. And are we bearing fruit for when he returns? Now, the good news is he's told us what he's looking for. There's no surprises here. And I'm not going to read the full story, but there's three great parables in the book of Matthew, chapter 25. I encourage you to go where you've got the scripture in your notes to go and read it later. You know them, maybe you've heard the parable of the virgins and the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I'll just highlight their main points briefly. In the parable of the virgins, five of them were prepared for the master's return and five of them were unprepared. And the question Jesus lays on you is, will you be ready for my return? Are you waiting? Because I am coming back. In the parable of the talents, which maybe all of you know pretty well, remember there's three guys and each of them are given an investment while the master goes away and he says, when I come back, I want to see the money, right? And two of the guys put the money to work. They did something with it. They brought back a return. And one guy buried in the dirt and says, I'm terrified. 
Okay? And the guy who didn't do anything with it, he gets kicked out. And the question is, Jesus, the Lord has invested in you, not just money, but resources and gifts and power. He's given you something. What are you doing with it? Because he's coming back to see, all right, what have you done with what I gave you? It's ominous, isn't it? There's some responsibility here. And then, of course, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, those who care for the hungry, the thirsty, the poor, those in prison, the sick, the downtrodden, the weak, Jesus will treat those things as if you'd done them for him. But if you ignore those things, if you do not do justice and love mercy and look after the poor, he says you're stuffed. We know the fruit. We know the parameters. It's no surprise. It's been the same since Jeremiah, the same since Jesus entered the temple, and it's the same today. God wants a people who will follow him to glorify him to the world, not to make ourselves feel good. Are we loving our neighbors? I'm going to invite our musicians to come up and take their places. I'm also going to highlight this morning's prayer ministers. We've got Craig and Wendy Tim and Janice and Val who are here to pray with you. And you are welcome to receive prayer for anything. In fact, I encourage you in whatever state of life you're in to receive prayer. And as with each and every week right now, we have an opportunity to respond and worship in prayer. We've got two songs that come right now. And in both of these songs, you have a chance to throw yourself in a fresh way on the mercy of King Jesus. And we long for his coming, but we desperately need his grace in the meantime. And he will help. Will you stand and let's worship together.